0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On the 1st of September 1939 at 4.45 a.m., the German battleship Schleswig-Holstein opened fire on Polish positions in the free city of Danzig on the Baltic coast. They were the first shots of the Second World War in Europe. German armour and infantry units already crossed the border at several points, and a propaganda operation was in place to claim that German forces were acting in self-defence. The German invasion of Poland had begun. It would lead to declarations of war by Britain and France on Germany, the start of another war on the European continent. This episode of History Hit is a replay of one that we first broadcast on the anniversary of that event in 2019, on the 80th anniversary. It's got Roger Morehouse, one of our favourite historians here at History Hit. He's written a series of books on Polish-German history from the Second World War, and he wrote a great account of this battle for Poland in 1939. We've got a flutter of World War II podcasts out at the moment. Richard Overy, the world's greatest expert on the Second World War, with his It's like New Interpretation of the War is a great clash of imperial entities, and we got a lot of Second World War material on History Hit TV. we got a lot of it, I'm afraid to say. A lot of documentaries about it, a lot of podcasts. If you want to go and watch them, listen to them, become a subscriber to History Hit. It's the only way. You get 30 days free if you subscribe now to the Netflix of History. You go on there, historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv, 30 days free when you sign up now. And for the price of a fancy coffee every month, you get access to the world's greatest history channel. It's actually been nominated. It's not just me saying that anymore. It's actually been nominated here in the UK in a British Media Industry Awards as the best specialist channel. So uh, head over and see what all the fuss is about. Historyhit.tv. In the meantime, though, here is Roger Morehouse. Roger, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Pleasure. Always good to have you on. Now, this is... Um, this is as big as, this is it. This is the start of the Second World War. But rather than writing it from the British point of view, you're actually reminding us that it was, in fact, the Poles that were initially in uh, in the crosshairs of yes. Hitler's Wehrmacht.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, the Poles, bless them, I think they get a poor deal uh, in a lot of things. I mean, for, certainly the, the Anglo-Saxon perspective on history tends to stop, you know, kind of at Berlin and uh, most things, points east of that, are, are pretty much ignored, with notable exceptions. But I think Poland sort of falls foul of that. And a good example, really, is the, is the Polish campaign, you know, 39. It starts the war. It's very significant, as I show in the book. It, you know, a lot of the sort of salient features of the later war, the sort of barbarization of warfare, the targeting of civilians, all of that sort of thing, blitzkrieg, no less, is all in the Polish campaign. And yet, you know, it doesn't really feature in our collective narrative of the Second World War. Beyond maybe a page, it might get a, you know, the odd mention that the Poles are, you know, send cover against tanks, all of that sort of mythology. And it struck me when I was writing the last book on the Nazi-Soviet pact that you know, there's a big gap in our understanding, actually, of that campaign. And rather than seeing it from a purely Western perspective and talking about you know, Westminster shenanigans and Britain sort of doing the right thing, as in going to war, but they're not, not actually doing much about it, to actually sort of switch the perspective and try and see it from the Polish perspective uh, and use Polish sources as well. So I, I've kind of switched the uh, point of attack, as it were, to look at it from a Polish perspective. And it's, and it's a very different story.
1: Start at the beginning. Poland, which had disappeared, had been swallowed up by its neighbours in the 18th century mm. and 19th, suddenly re-emerges after Versailles. It is occupying bits of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, bits of the former Russian Empire, bits of the former German Empire, Why did that unique geography provide the excuse for Adolf Hitler to to go to war against Poland? Well, you've got the situation
0: after the First World War where basically both the Soviet Union as a successor state to to Russia and then Nazi Germany as of of 1933 are both revisionist states. They both want to revise what happened at the end of the First World War. It's worth mentioning that Poland actually sort of does re-emerge after that 123 years of of being wiped from the map. Its re-emergence is kind of done on its own bat. So it does, it profits from that collapse, but it's already de facto, you know, created its own state by the time Versailles is is kind of rubber stamping its existence. So it's not, it doesn't owe its existence solely to Versailles. That's a point worth mentioning. But to those two Revisionist states to Nazi Germany and to the Soviet Union—it's—it's an abomination. It's—it's taken their land. It's—it's a a, almost a personification of the Versailles Settlement, you know. And it has to go. So even before 33, actually, um, you know, German senior German ministers are saying that um, you know the the future grounds of a uh, German-Soviet collaboration must include the destruction of Poland. So it's even in in the early early 1920s, even it's been talked about. So the point at which Germany and the Soviet Union find common ground will inevitably mean the destruction of Poland. And that's what happens with the Nazi-Soviet pact in August 1939, and then you know, a week later, you've got the, the German invasion of Poland.
1: I mean, just give us a sense. I mean, why, why is there this antipathy towards Poland? Is it peak, or is it the fact that there are Germans living now in, under, a, under a Polish government, being forced to learn Polish and music? Yeah,
0: I mean, there is that, that, that element. I think primarily it's the interwar Poland symbolizes the Versailles Treaty for those two countries and they want to get rid of the Versailles Treaty. The other aspect is, of course, yes, there are about a million and a half Germans living in Poland, ethnic Germans living in Poland. Those are the, you know, the remnants of, of the German populations of West Prussia, which becomes the Polish Corridor, of the Posen District and Upper Silesia. So you've got large numbers of, of Germans within, within Poland. You've got large numbers of Belarusians and Ukrainians on the eastern frontier as well. So it has large minorities, which is part of Poland's interwar problem, that in essentially post-First World War, pushing its boundaries as far as it could, particularly in the East, it actually inherits or develops for itself a minorities problem, which is never really solved in the interwar period. If if anything, it's exacerbated. Poland, as a, as a, a state that sort of restored itself in 1918, is quite sort of aggressively nationalistic in its domestic policy. So it doesn't sit well with having large minorities within the state. That's a problem for it, and it's a problem that they're never fully reconciled. You know, the it's German with
1: nationalism. I mean, you know,
0: yeah, it is. I mean, you can understand why the Polish interwar state is quite nationalistic because it suffered all of that, you know, 120 odd years of occupation. So when it finally is able to have its own state, it's almost inevitably going to be quite, you know, patriotic, nationalistic. But that doesn't sit well with the fact that it's got large minorities in, in, its, uh, in its midst. So it's a problem of its own making that it never really solves.
1: It's almost like the ideology of nationalism dreamt up by a load of Frenchmen in the 18th century proved inappropriate when implanted on the very complex geography yeah, of Eastern Europe.
0: And it is very complex as yeah. well. You, have, you, you, don't have, you don't have clear sort of delineation of, of populations. You've got very often urban or semi-urban populations are different from the rural op- populations that surround them and things like that. So it's actually very, very difficult to draw ethnically clean lines anywhere in, in Central Europe. And that's, that's a sort of universal problem that is, nev- is not solved in the interwar period. And, and is only really solved by the brutal answer, which is to deport those people that, you know, after the Second World War, they'd start deporting Germans. And, and you've got massive kind of ethnic upheaval in that period, not least the Holocaust. So you've got, that's the only, essentially the only way to solve the ethnic problems of Central Europe. Is by massive upheaval.
1: Or just jettison a nationalist idea of a state. Uh, that too, but
0: <laughs> you, know, you, are a, you are, you are, in the early 20th century, yeah. we are still in a nationalist period, aren't
1: right, we? Right, so Hitler partitions in breach the Munich Agreement, famous Munich Agreement. Hitler partitions Czechoslovakia. Mm. He fixes his gaze on Poland next. What does he think? How willing is Hitler to provoke a, a world war, a, a general war, by 1939?
0: Hitler has an odd sort of, sort of psychosis about this. On the one hand, he doesn't think it will provoke a war because he thinks that the West are worms, as he described them. Um, they're not going to stand up and fight for Poland. So he doesn't think it's going to provoke a war at all. So he's quite happy to sort of saber rattle and undermine Poland as he does. I mean, there's lots of sort of border incidents and there's um, you know, propaganda offensives in the summer of 1939, which is constantly trying to portray Poland as the bad guy, as the aggressor, and that culminates in the, in the Gleiwitz incidents of August 31st, which is this attack on a radio station inside Germany, but close to the Polish border, which is made to look like it was done by uh, Polish irregulars.
1: And uh, in fact, it was...
0: In fact, it was the SS, yeah, that had done it itself, which is a fabulous story. And I, again, I, I sort of retell that story in, my, in the introduction to the book. It's the, it's the opening scene. And it's a great scene. And again, you know, part of my justification for the book was to want to put the Poles back into their, their own narrative as I said at the beginning. And there's one you know, interesting case there, that the, the victim, there was only one victim. Again, Glivitz gets told in the wrong way all the time. It's mixed up with other operations of the period. Uh, it's conflated with other, other operations. And it, the narrative is really is wrong most of the time it's told. If you actually go back to the original sources, which I have, you can, you can sort of clarify what it is. And there's only one victim of Glivitz, And his name was Franchisek Honiok. And he was an ethnic Pole living in Upper Silesia, in German Upper Silesia. And he was picked up by the Gestapo because they wanted someone with a track record of Polish agitation, and he had that. And he was picked up from a bar and taken to a number of police stations, never registered anywhere, you know, despite the sort of mania for German mania for paperwork, he was never registered anywhere. No one spoke to him. Uh, and he was there smoking gun. So he was the guy that they were going to you know, leave at the scene, which they did. And he is shot at the end of the Gliwitz operation. They take over this radio station and they're supposed to transmit a sort of incendiary Polish announcement saying that uh, you know the war of liberation has begun and we're going, to, we're going to take German territory and all this sort of thing. They only get about nine words in and then for some reason it's broken off and then there's just white noise. But the first nine words they reckon were actually broadcast. Uh, but it didn't matter. It was just a propaganda exercise to give them the excuse. And then Honiok is left at The scene having been drugged initially and then shot, but Honyok is never fleshed out. So, again, you see, he's he suffers from this idea that the Poles kind of are beyond the radius of history. So, I wanted to flesh out who Honyok was as far as is possible. So, again, I sort of researched that to actually flesh out this first victim of World War II. So, that in itself is, a, is, a, is an interesting aside, anyway. But now, Hitler's Hiller, willing to run the risk that he, he thinks that the Western powers are not going to intervene, he thinks they're weak. They're corrupted that democracy has corrupted them uh, and that uh, they won't intervene in the, on the poles behalf but just to make sure he does makes all of this effort to undermine poland's case for assistance to make it look like it's the aggressor to give every excuse possible to those voices in the west that say oh do we really want to be going to war for poland for which there were a few so he really doesn't think it's going to happen there's a wonderful scene where where the british declaration of war is actually delivered to him in the Reich Chancellery office in, on the third morning of the 3rd of September, where the message is relayed back to him that the British had basically declared war. And he turns to Ribbentrop, who's been his great advisor, and he says, what now? Because it's, this, isn't, this isn't what Ribbentrop had told him would happen. And it's not what he thought would happen. So there's, there's a profound miscalculation actually on Hitler's part that uh, he, he didn't expect this to trigger a, a world war.
1: So talk to me about the German invasion and Polish preparations and resistance. Following the incident, the SS, fake attack on that radio station, what happens in the hours following that?
0: Following morning, you know, the, the tanks are already rolling. Following morning, by the time that uh, that incident is being reported in the German press and on the, on the German radio, you know, the tanks are already rolling. They, they roll, you know, already about four o'clock. The first shots fired are at the Westerplatte, which is a Polish port uh, just to the north of Danzig. And that was a military depot, which had been established in the 1920s, uh, essentially to handle sort of sensitive and military traffic, which couldn't, couldn't go through Danzig itself because it would be disrupted by the German population of Danzig. So the first shots are fired by the, uh, an aged uh, German battleship, the Schleswig-Holstein, which opens fire at almost point-blank range on the, the Polish uh, depot on the West- Westerplatte which is a great site. You know, it's still, I was there a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a great place to go and see, you know, as, as the, the, the site of the opening shots of World War II. It's quite phenomenal. Uh, not many people go there, I think. I think more of us should. Those are the first shots. Simultaneously, the first air raids take place. Town of Vielun, for example, is raided uh, soon after five o'clock. Again, Vielun is undef- undefended uh, and is, is almost completely destroyed by, by German Stukas. Another town called Tczew, which is a sort of strategically important crossing on the Vistula, the River Vistula, is raided at four thirty in the morning as well. So already, you know, at dawn, shots are being fired and the tanks are rolling across the frontier.
1: And what was the state of Polish preparation?
0: It's actually quite thorough. The Polish army is not as inept or ill prepared or feckless as it's often described. Part of the problem with this narrative, is that you know, because no, nobody has had a sort of a vested interest in telling the story over the years, we're left effectively, you know, the thing that, that anyone seems to know or thinks they know about the September campaign yeah. is basically German propaganda from World War II, which is that the Poles are you know, charging German tanks with their cavalry, that they're sort of feckless, they're not worth defending, they're foolish, they're unprepared, all of this stuff. Uh, and that's really not fair. That's really not true. If you look back at, you know, what, what the Polish preparations were, of course, they are massively lacking, in, particularly in armour vis-a-vis the Germans. That's one thing. But the Poles still they are still They're the fifth largest standing army in the world in 1939. They have a, a pretty good air force. By most people's standards in 1939, their air force is pretty well equipped. They have tanks. They just don't have any of the same quality of the Germans and the same quantity. And crucially, their preparations in in 1939 were as much strategically minded as they were uh, militarily. And the strategic aspect of this is that they didn't want to give the Western powers any excuse not to act. And that meant you had to basically defend your frontiers. So the logical argument would be in 1939, you find a defensive line that you can hold to which would be, you know, ideally, you know, Poland's pretty flat, so there's no natural defences except for rivers. So it was talked about amongst the Polish high command that you could defend the line of the Vistula, which runs more or less north-south through Poland, and the line of the River Narev, which runs in the northeast, you know, joins the, joins the Vistula. You could defend those two lines. They're both substantial rivers. They would be defensible. But then, of course, you're ceding all of Western Poland to, to the Germans. And that would mean that the British and the French would go, well, we're not going to fight for you if you're not going to fight for yourselves. There's another, you know, more grist to the mill of those in the West who would say, well, we're not. why should we defend these, these, these idiotic Poles? So the political argument meant that you had to defend the frontier. So then they're left in the situation that you're, you're exposing yourself to a, to a rapid advance of more mobile, more armoured troops than you've got and they're going to encircle you and they're going to destroy you. So so the plan was basically to engage them on the frontier, to make sure that that political aspect is triggered, but at the same time to try and execute a sort of fighting withdrawal as fast as possible. So it was all thought through. This wasn't some sort of, you know, again, like the German propaganda says, this wasn't some sort of foolish, feckless idea that they would take on tanks with, with cavalry. They never did. It's a myth they actually had a thought out plan where they would engage for the political benefits that that would bring bringing the british and the french into the war and then withdraw to defensible lines but the problem they had was that they they couldn't withdraw fast enough against the you know the, the mobile german forces
1: let's talk about those mobile german forces for a second because the polish campaign is the first time we get a glimpse of so called blitzkrieg it's, mm. it is an element of myth i mean how how effective were the german forces in september 1939 and what was this new concept they were deploying on the battlefield?
0: German forces are very effective, and certainly in comparison to the Poles, and particularly the Air Force. The Luftwaffe, it, you know, has, it doesn't have freedom of the skies. Again, that's a bit more mythology. The idea that the Polish Air Force was destroyed on its, on its bases on the 1st of September, it wasn't. It still is fighting, admittedly, against more powerful, a more powerful opponent, and, and you know, outnumbered and outfought and outflown. But it still fights, you know, up until in, into the second week and beyond. But the German air raiding on Poland is very effective, and it's very effective as a terror weapon. Um, so, in terms of sort of sowing destruction behind the lines, damaging Polish morale amongst civilians and so on, hugely effective and used in a, a very effective way. On land, again, the, the Germans are very good at what they're doing, but it's very mixed. So, the, again, the idea that you know they are instituting this new doctrine of Blitzkrieg, which is you know, fast-moving, armoured spearheads, breaking through the defensive lines, pushing through to the rear, just, you know, essentially keep going and prevent the creation of any sort of phased defence on the behalf of your opponent. That idea is used in some examples. You know, there is some coordination, particularly people like Guderian. General Guderian, you know, one of the godfathers of Blitzkrieg, and he was very good at doing this and driving his forces on all the time. There's a wonderful scene that I recount in this advance where Guderian actually comes across one of his commanders and says, well, where are you headed? And and the commander has his sort of map and he shows him. He says, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go there. And he points to somewhere like 100 miles further on. He said, I want you to take that by tomorrow morning. And he goes, you must be joking. But that was essentially was the essence of Blitzkrieg, is that rapid advance of of armoured columns as far as they could possibly go to disrupt any sort of phased (laughs) defence.
1: Listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking about the invasion of Poland. More off this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms.
0: We'll be looking at Northumbria mercia and wessex as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation make sure to get every episode by listening and following gone medieval from history hit wherever you get your podcasts
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So armored columns, tanks rampaging up these streets and tracks. Aircraft like the Stuka acting as mobile artillery, so exactly. talking to the tanks, bo- bombing whatever's ahead, and not worried about the flanks. You just go deep like a, like a sword thrust. Yeah, okay. and, and very
0: often, I mean, it is not yet, in 39, the crucial thing, it is being used. I mean, it's not yet official doctrine, but it is being used in isolated examples. And, and there are cases that, I, again, I, I wrote them up in the book, where you know, those columns find themselves very isolated. Mm-hmm. And they end up, you know, doing a sort of hedgehog defence overnight, waiting, desperately waiting for the rest of their own forces, which in some cases sort of 50 kilometres behind them.
1: And might be horse-drawn or people walking. So
0: again, the whole horse thing, you know, I mean, the Germans had more horses in 1939 than the Poles did. So let's not, let's get away from the idea of the Germans all being in tanks and the Poles all being in horses. That's, Mm. that's, uh, again, that's German propaganda.
1: The trouble is for the Poles, you hear that a German spearhead is 50 kilometres behind you. And you just panic. You just melt. You just panic. Yeah. Whereas actually, if they, as the Russians later learned and demonstrated, it doesn't really matter if you just stand firm where you are. And you know, the, the German might should be quite weak, even though they've got yeah. their spear tip. Okay. But again, it
0: kind of it, it hadn't really been dealt with in that way before. And as you say, the Soviets, the Red Army, had to learn how to deal with that, and they learned the hard way and with, with heavy losses. But the Poles weren't really versed in how to do it. Where the Poles had something to defend, where they had um, fortifications, bunkers, of which there were many installations, particularly places like Muava up in the north, the frontier just south of East Prussia, you know, they could actually hold the Germans very well. So where they had something concrete, literally concrete to defend, they actually fought very well and they could hold them off for, for many days until outflanked. So I mean, if, even Hitler sort of, you know, in, in a speech in Danzig on whatever, 17th of September, you know, praised the fighting ability of the ordinary Polish soldier. In that they they fought with with great uh, courage, and they did. And in many cases, they gave the Germans a bloody nose.
1: When did Britain and France declare war?
0: So the British and the French you know, agonised uh, about their declaration of war. Initially, the Poles, right from the outset, from September the first, were messaging uh, London and Paris and basically saying, "Okay, well, you know, the terms of our agreement have now been triggered. When are you declaring war?" And uh, Uh, The British and the French wrestled with this. The British didn't have the capacity on land to really do anything effectively at the time. They didn't have any troops across the the, uh, Channel, for example. So they're rather dependent on French action. The French were less willing to act than the British were. But they both managed to sort of collectively grow a spine and actually declare war, which they did on, uh, on the morning of September the 3rd. This is this famous, you know, we probably all heard the, the radio broadcast of Chamberlain announcing to the world that he delivered a, an ultimatum to Herr Hitler, that uh, German forces should be withdrawn forthwith from Poland and so on. And, no such undertaking and no such has been, undertaking been received. No such undertaking has been received. So consequently, this country is at war with, with Germany. Wonderful moment in, you know, when sort of hairs on that stick up on the back of your neck moment. But that's, in, that's on the morning of the 3rd of September. And as such, I mean, a, a lot of what the British and the French politicians are talking about in that period where they are agonizing, they're talking about a sense of national honor. They're saying, we can't let these people down. You know, Our honor demands that we do what we said we would do. And, and it is an honorable act to have declared war. Because actually, certainly from a British perspective, there's not that much that we could have done. There's really not much chance that the British could project their power to the Baltic and to Eastern Europe. That certainly isn't the case. And as I said, there are no British troops across the Channel. So there's not much that can be done in the short term uh, in terms of a land offensive. What they could have done was to start bombing German targets, which they do do. They start rather tentatively bombing military targets, Wilhelmshaven, places, ports and so on, and dropping leaflets as well, which is just preposterous. You know, so they start dropping leaflets on the German population saying, you know, do you know what your country is doing and you know, separate yourselves from, from Herr Hitler and his gang and so on. I mean, that was a rather ludicrous thing to do. The British attitude is somewhat half-hearted, to say the least. And there's a wonderful scene where I think it's Kingsley Wood, the Minister for Air, was uh, challenged in the cabinet meeting and, and said, well, why aren't we bombing uh, German arms dumps in the, in the Black Forest, which would, you'd imagine was a, you know, a, a rather obvious target. And he said, "Good God, uh, are you not aware that the, that's private property?" Uh, this rather sums up the British attitude. We were very much fighting with one arm behind our back and and sort of going through the motions, or not even that, just pretending to to make war. Collectively, our hearts weren't in it. I think, and it and it took that, you know, the the German attack westward in 1940 to actually sort of galvanise British opinion and and and, and crucially, the British government, the British military. So not much is done. There is this sort of Sar offensive that the French undertake, which is supposedly a prelude to a general attack in the West, but it never, it never amounts to anything.
1: The French probe into Germany.
0: They probe, and it is a, it is a very, very half-hearted probe. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of accounts of, you know, a division being held up by a single single German machine gun, for example, which is just, I mean, it's ludicrous. Half-hearted doesn't begin to describe it. And actually, I mean, it, in retrospect, not that they could necessarily have known that, but the German forces in the West were absolutely paired to the bone. You know, they were, they were really hollowed out. So all of the German air force offensive uh, capacity was in the East. Almost all of its armor was in the East. So actually, had they been minded to push hard in the Saar offensive, the French, they could have achieved something, but they weren't. And it, you know, lasted a couple of days and fiddled, fizzled out and they, and they withdrew. And of course, the Poles are reporting the Tsar offensive in the most sort of glowing, hyperbolic terms and saying, oh, we, you know, they're advancing on Stuttgart. No, they, they weren't, you know. But they wanted to believe that, that there was something going on in their name.
1: And what about the character of war in the way that it impacted on civilians? We, we've talked a bit about air attacks. We now associate the Second World War with unimaginable barbarism. How quickly does that start to make itself felt, even in these very, very first hours of the Second World War? It
0: uh, <clears throat> has to be said straight away. I think there's a, a convention sometimes that imagines that the this idea of the barbarization of warfare is something that develops you know slowly during the, the opening phase of the war, and maybe comes to its you know sort of horrible apogee in the German invasion of the Soviet Union in '41, for example, and thereafter. And we know that story from you know you know the Holocaust, the Einsatzgruppen, all of that stuff, the deliberate targeting of civilian populations. But to imagine that that's not happening in 1939 is completely wrong. And this is, again, is part of this, this problem with the perspective. If, if our narrative of 1939, such as it is, is essentially taken from German propaganda, then we're not going to hear this stuff. So we have to shift the perspective and look at, you know, what Paul's writing about this, about this episode. Interestingly, the, the outlier here is actually the French campaign of 1940. In the French campaign of 1940, the Germans commit three massacres all incidentally by, by SS forces, and they are Wormhautz, the Paradis, and Wingt. And so within a six-week period, they commit three massacres of POWs and civilians. In the Polish campaign, the Germans alone, and bear in mind that the Soviets invade Poland as well from the east after, after September 17th, the Germans alone commit an estimated 600 massacres. So it's, it's a daily occurrence. You know, There's something like 15 or 16 per day on average, during the Polish campaign. And that's purely down to the racist ideology that the German forces go in with, basically saying that the Polish people are inferior, that they are Judaized. It's not just Jews targeted, incidentally, it's Poles as well. You know, large numbers of Jews are also massacred, but Poles predominantly. Farmers are targeted because you can usually find a weapon on a farm of some description. So, of course, that's quite easy to just you know, conflate with sort of partisan activity civilians are caught up in the crossfire and caught up in the, in the process of blitzkrieg where you've got, you know, isolated Polish units that are left behind behind the lines. And it's very, again, it's very easy to describe that then as partisan activity. If, you're, if the line has moved, you know, 20 kilometers on and you're still fighting there behind the lines, effectively, then that's, you're a partisan, you can be shot. You know, that's the logic. So there's, a, there's, there's various reasons for it, but the underlying one is, is simple racism because the same conditions apply in 1940, and there are only three massacres only, but there are only three massacres. So you can see that that barbarisation is there right from the outset, and it's, a, it's almost an integral part of the Nazi worldview and of you know, the ideology that they go
1: in with. Two weeks into the campaign, Britain and France aren't doing much, and then things get a whole lot worse for the mm-hmm. Poles.
0: Uh, 17th September, Stalin's Red Army invades Eastern Poland. Which was a surprise for many people, not least many Poles. You had had the, the Nazi-Soviet Pact signed in August, August 23rd. And those, clear of eye, shall we say, might have realised that this was on, in the offing. That the, that the, uh, the which should, By the, the way, Germans.
1: we tell everyone that you wrote an excellent book about the molotov yeah, ribbentrop Pact, the Nazi-Soviet Pact, which you've been on the podcast I have, about before. I have, The
0: Devil's Alliance. The Devil's the Alliance. Alliance, go Alliance, and read it. it. 2014, yes, it was... Uh, Excellent piece of work, may I say. Yeah. Um, so go on. yeah, so some people might have sort of seen the writing on the wall that Stalin would invade Eastern Poland as he did. But I think for a lot of people, it's still a surprise, not least for the Poles themselves. And part of, part of the Soviet method, actually, is to, as they do now, you know, with their various activities, is to sow uh, confusion as they go in. So they invade at dawn on 17th, and a lot of the messaging, they drop leaflets, for example, on, on you know, isolated sort of towns and so on. On the Poland's eastern frontier is very, very rural. It's very underdeveloped. Uh, lots of small towns, but, you know, lots of farmland, not many people. But they go in uh, deliberately sowing disinformation and saying, we're coming to help you against the Germans. Of course they're not. Right? We're not going to hurt you because we're all Slavic brothers together. So we're not, we're not attacking Poland. But Poland has collapsed and we've come to protect our, you know, Ethnic uh, Ukrainians, ethnic Belarus. So, you know, a mixture of messages coming out of, the, out of the Red Army propaganda machine. So, again, that's sort of what you see nowadays. You know, they see the same thing, this sort of deliberate disinformation, as a, as a uh, not necessarily to push a particular narrative, but just to sow inaction because people don't know how to react at all. So, in some places, Polish border guards fight them. In other places, they sort of welcome them, welcome them into the barracks and say, you know, we're so glad you're helping us against the Germans. And then, by the way, oh, we're not. And they, they, you know, they pull out the rifles and that's it. So it's a, it's a completely bizarre picture, the Soviet invasion. And actually, it's very interesting because it's not really been done. Where you've, where you've had, there have been a couple of books that have talked about the, the Polish campaign before. They've really, because of a lack of sources and maybe a lack of will, perhaps, they haven't looked at the Soviet invasion in any sort of depth at all. And the more you look into it, the more bizarre it seems. It's, it's, it, it is a military invasion, but it's, it's absolutely chaotic on both sides. Um, the Red Army is in no fit, fit state really to fight because it's just come off the back of the, you know, Stalin's purges, where a lot of its senior personnel have, have, been, have been put up against the wall and shot. So the, the Red Army, in many cases, they are lacking uniforms, they're lacking weapons. You've got, you've got units marching barefoot, for example, into Poland. And the, and the Poles who have this tradition of, you know, the, the cavalrymen and all, you know, the, the very grand tradition of the, uh, the Polish ulans, wonderfully dressed in these sort of tailored uniforms and so on. And they looked at these, they look at these Red Army soldiers coming in with string for belts and bare feet. And they say, what is this? We, you know, they're saying, this is like, and it's described as a, uh, an army of ragamuffins by one bystander. You know, they say things like, Asia has invaded us. Who are these people? It's just complete incomprehension of what's going on. So it's actually a fascinating story that really doesn't get uh, talked about in the, in the sort of conventional narrative of World War II. Chaotic on both sides. But what's it, the, the key thing to sort of bear in mind is that actually the Soviets are importing their own brand of warfare as well. So whereas the Germans in the West are importing race war, as i've said that huge number of atrocities their their ideology drives them on to you know view their opponents as subhuman in the east the soviets are importing class war and they very quickly start targeting local authorities politicians police officers you know anyone in any sort of position of authority school teachers you know professors doctors priests and this is the beginning of that sort of process of the decapitation of Polish society, which both sides do. And I talked about that in the previous book. Both the Germans and the Soviets actually collude in this idea of decapitating Polish society to rob Poland of its elite. Uh, and that begins in the, Pol- in the Soviet example, it begins right at the start of that invasion. They immediately start targeting landowners, start targeting policemen, and they're rounded up and sent east, or worse. You know, In many cases, they're just uh, shot on the spot.
1: And is the Soviet invasion the end for Poland?
0: Effectively, it is. There was, it's difficult to see that the Poles really had much of a chance against the Germans on their own. So they needed, and they knew they needed Western help. That's why they had that sort of strategic plan and so on. That's why they signed the, you know, the Anglo-Polish agreement on 25th of August. They were fully expecting to have material help from the West, but they're, Primary problem is that that didn't materialize. So, for, on their own, they couldn't really hope to be, beat the Germans. So, they are already reeling by the time the Soviets invade. But there could, feasibly, there might have been you know, some space in eastern Poland where they could have regrouped. But that's rather, I think that's rather tenuous. The Soviet invasion is certainly a nail in the coffin of the Polish state, not least because one, you know, their tactical decision at the time is to move as much as possible in terms of you know, administration, politicians, high command, to move them down into the south east of the country and across into Romania, which was, you know, nominally neutral. So that they called it the Romanian Bridgehead, was to get as many of their troops and their units and their, their high command and so on across the border. And obviously the Soviets coming over the frontier and heading for Lvov and cutting off that uh, line of retreat stopped that or hindered that uh, Romanian bridgehead. So it's certainly an, you know, a nail in the coffin. But of course, you know the Poles keep fighting. The last Polish units in the September campaign actually surrender on the 6th of October. So they keep fighting for another you know a good two and a half weeks after the Soviet invasion, uh, which is worth bearing in mind.
1: Just to conclude, really, the Polish government go into exile in London and, and Polish airmen play a key role in the Battle of Britain. And, and so Poland fights on in, in, in many ways. But just give me a sense of the calamity that was unfolded on Poland from the 1st of September right up to 1945. How did that country suffer?
0: Oh, uh, again, we, ha- we have to get away from our sort of Western perspective of World War II in this and see that actually the sort of the very cockpit of the war in World War II, you know, as Tim Snyder describes in his book Bloodlands, is kind of Poland, uh, the Baltic states, Ukraine, is, is all of that. Area of Central Europe. Yeah,
1: that's basically where World War II happened. That's <laughs> where World War II happened. you know, that's
0: yeah. where you have the largest death tolls. That's where you have these, you know, these rival totalitarian systems fighting out. And in the case of Poland, you've you've got, you know, it, it's unique in that sense that Poland, you know, for the opening two years of the war, is partitioned by the two totalitarian powers: the Soviet Union in the east, Nazi Germany in the west, and it, and they treat their respective halves as a sort of a laboratory of, of their own ideology. So they're busy deporting people, they're moving people around, they're executing people. I mentioned this, this uh, decapitation of Polish society that goes on. So there's sort of active process of, you know, you know, radical social and ethnic change being forced on Polish society in that period. And it's extremely violent. And then, of course, once the Germans attack the Soviet Union in 1941, then all of Poland falls under German occupation. And that becomes the, essentially the laboratory of the Holocaust. That's when the Holocaust gets going. So again, the scouring Polish populations, they're using Polish territory as a dumping ground for all of those Jewish populations and other, to Nazis, undesirables that they just shifted west as a prelude to extermination. So again, you know, Poland is front center in the narrative. And then to cap it all, liberation, in inverted commas, uh, in 1945 is a soviet liberation is the same enemy that they'd already experienced between 1939 and 41 that had imposed its communist system and its class war on Poland in those period in that time so for many poles you know liberation only really comes in 1989 when the communist system collapses so yes when you mentioned poles escaping into exile and that narrative which again is tremendously heroic and we forget perhaps that poles fought in exile in every theater of the European war Monte Cassino Narvik Battle of the Atlantic Arnhem the list goes on but for the poles who stayed at home you know this was an absolutely searing experience
1: do you have a sense of overall casualties in pre-war Polish population
0: pre-war pop uh, it's it, essentially it's between a fifth and a quarter of the total population is killed in world war 2 so per capita it's, it's I think one of, if not the highest death toll uh, in World War II.
1: I mean, that's up there with a catechismic event like the Black Death. Absolutely, absolutely. That's
0: why I say, you know, we have to kind of shift our focus a bit. We have to get away from our rather cozy, you know, parochial, uh, you know, Western view of of Dunkirk and D Day and all of that stuff. And actually, well, yeah, that's fine. And that's, that's our narrative. I understand that. That's our grandfathers and our great grandfathers. But if you really want to understand where World War II is happening and what's going on, you have to shift your gaze further east.
1: And where it starts. Thank you very much, Roger Moyes. Now the book is called... First to Fight. First to Fight. Everyone go and buy it in a shop or on the internet. Thank you, Roger, as ever. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. I feel
0: we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs...
1: This part of the history of our country, all work on and finish. Thanks, folks. You made it the episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please however, don't do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for this £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.